Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, a student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series that explains how different fabrics are made. We're going back to basics and asking industry insiders questions like, what are the production processes behind different fabrics? Who are the players involved? What are their incentives? And more. Because it's hard to have a conversation about how to make a material better or how to make a garment better if we don't understand how it's made in the first place. Today, I'm taking a look at cotton. It's a topic I've also covered back in episodes 41 and 42 when I talked to Canon Michael, a cotton grower in California, and in episodes 43 and 44 when I spoke to Crispin Argento about direct-to-grower cotton sourcing and cotton traceability. This time, I'm joined by Rajiv Barua, who has worked in cotton for decades, to talk through the cotton value chain in the Indian context. Though his background is originally in agriculture and tea, his cotton journey started with a spinning facility on a mission to work with organic cotton farmers, something that, at the time, was unheard of. In the years since, he's gone on to work in a number of different roles with different stakeholders across the value chain. Rajiv gives me an in-depth look at the steps that go into growing, harvesting, ginning, and spinning cotton, who the commercial actors in the Indian context are, and what their incentives might be. Rajiv, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so grateful to have this chance to pick your brain because you're just a wealth of information. I wanted to start actually with your entry point into the world of cotton and your time in spinning. So it's the early 90s. You've decided to set up a spinning mill. Can you tell us a little bit more about this spinning mill? What parts of the production process were you doing? I'm curious to hear just a little bit more about what this was like working so closely with farmers, especially because there are plenty of spinning mills out there who have never seen a cotton farm, right? So how did that go? See, look, the farmers have nothing to do with the spinning directly. Of course, the cotton they use is really what is used in a spinning mill. So the interface that a farmer would have is probably with a ginning factory or a middleman or a trader. So, but I think the the fact that we were associated and, you know, spinning mills are quite humongous entities in terms of space, in terms of area. So I think the physical presence of the spinning mill there, this humongous building and area probably helped us to gain the farmer's a trust in a way. So, but most spinning mills in India have nothing to do with farmers. Maybe it's worth just giving a bit of an overview of conventionally, how does this work? You have a cotton farmer, you mentioned that their, may, their point of contact is maybe a trader or a ginner. Can you maybe just like take us through a, briefly what that chain kind of tends or typically looks like? And then we can talk about how this was different in your context. See, Classically, a ginning factory has to be located where cotton is grown. You cannot have a ginning factory in Delhi or or Netherlands or any part of the world where cotton is not grown simply because transportation of seed cotton is a 
humongous task because cotton is a very voluminous commodity so normally is that the farmer is growing the cotton conventionally or whatever way based on his knowledge and experience and then you have what is called the market which in our language we call it the mandi m a n d i which is really the market there are several of these mandis in india maybe hundreds and the farmer can technically take his cotton there there are mandi prices which the farmers come to know now with cell phones they know every day what cotton prices are or cotton prices are published in all the local newspapers every day the previous days prices high the lows so it's up to the farmer how he decides to sell the cotton and what happens in a marketplace is that the ginners representative come to the market and there's an auction and then once you set the price the farmer will take his bullock cart or his tractor whatever he brought it and he will take it to the ginning factory and sell the cotton and most of the payments unfortunately happen in cash so that's the classical way of movement but a large part of the cotton moves through aggregators okay you know they may be small time money lenders in the village he may aggregate cotton from 10 farmers 20 farmers he may have a small storeroom and then he takes the cotton and sells it to the ginner so i think the statistics for india is that only 10% of the cotton goes directly to gins mainly is aggregators it also may differ from state to state rajasthan for instance uh, i know is most of the cotton goes directly to gins etc so it's a well oiled uh, channel right now the market seems to be very low but i don't think the farmers will ever have a problem of selling the cotton and also let me add that holding capacity of the farmers depends on his cash flow and also cotton is a very voluminous commodity to store you need a lot of space so i heard from people that they have stored it in their roofs people have found ways and means to store but it's cumbersome that's all i wanted to say Yeah, and I actually want to get into a little bit later in this conversation a little bit more about what makes the price of cotton so volatile. But before we get there, I want to cover a little bit more about your spinning facility. So you guys go and set up a spinning facility and, you know, you have this intention of trying to sort of support the development of organic cotton. So how do you go about that? Were you guys then buying directly from the cotton farmers or we were one of the spinning mills who actually set up a ginning factory also ah okay because without ginning spinning is of no use mm. i mean you cannot spin cotton that's harvested from farmers because it has seed inside 60 62% is actually seed depends from country to country and the seed is actually used for oil cotton seed oil is a very important oil and uh, once you press the oil you get cake and the cake is a very high protein animal feed so there are various uses so ginning is actually where the story of garments start i'm not talking about hand spun but modern day you know the t-shirts that we are wearing or the socks etc and i think today if you look at the statistics of india there probably be less than even not even 5% of spinning mills who have their own ginning factories 
But a ginning factory, the owner has to be there 24-7. It's a very strange business. So what has happened now in the last 10-15 years, especially in Gujarat, which is actually the largest cotton producer, not in largest in area, but large in productivity, is that ginners have now become spinners because the state government came with a textile policy. So a lot of ginners have now set up spinning mills, maybe a handful of them. Can you give us a flavor of what cotton farming in India looks like? See, we have about 12 lakh hectares. We have about six and a half million cotton farmers in India, about. Normally, we know the acreage and we know the output and then you kind of do a back calculation and then you say, look, so many number of farmers. Average land holding size in India, as per our government statistics, is about one and a half hectares. So we are talking about really small farmers who probably have one hectare of land, two hectares of land, three hectares of land. And um, depending on where I'm located, I could be growing. See, 65% of India's cotton comes from rain-fed areas, which means states like Maharashtra, Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, yeah, so... So you mean like no sort of irrigation system, it just yeah, through the... Yeah, I mean, they, they may have some irrigation, but that's what we call as protective or supplemental irrigation. Mm. Whereas the northern part of the country, which is Punjab, Haryana, and Rajasthan, has a canal system. So they will probably sow cotton a month before the onset of the monsoon. See, most of the agricultural activity in India starts with the onset of the monsoons, which is the middle of June. Now, depending on my water availability, I may decide, for example, I would say most farmers, I mean, I, re I recently met a group of farmers in Maharashtra, they probably do 80-90% cotton. And 10% other crops. Could be other crops. Again, it will depend on, in Punjab, it could be 50-50 because you have a choice between rice and cotton because you have water. Yeah. So if it's rice and cotton, maybe you choose rice Yeah. because rice is more profitable, less labor intensive. So I would think that with 65% of the cotton coming from rain-fed areas, cotton is their main cash crop. And that would maybe be anything between 60 to 80% of their land. Yeah. The reason I asked this question was because I think like, you know, when you're in the textile or fashion world, you talk about cotton farmer, cotton farmer, cotton farmer, like it's a word or a term that you hear a lot. But I think sometimes what people don't realize is that most cotton farmers are also growing other things. And that when you talk about a cotton farmer, they might have other interests commercially or things that they grow besides just cotton. Absolutely. But of course, the cropping patterns are specific to certain regions. Yeah, so let's actually talk about that. I'm curious to understand better the sort of overview of the timeline from planting through to harvest and what the steps are, but also on a calendar, what does that timeline look like? Look, I would say that 90% of the cotton is sown with the arrival of the monsoon. And normally we call it the Southwest monsoon, which normally hits India around 15th of June. And Sowing may start, say, end of June, end of June to 15th of July or end of July. That's when cotton is sown. And unfortunately, 
one of the biggest problem that India is facing in terms of its cotton is the duration. We have very long duration cotton. In many countries, it's done in 150 days, 160 days. We have 180 days, 210 days. We still have cotton in some of the areas. It's 240 days, 250 days. So the longer the duration, it's a management nightmare for farmers. So basically, you sow, say, mid-June to mid-July, let's say 1st of July, let's, and then you start picking the cotton by September. But what drives that duration? It's, it's, it's to do with the genetic makeup. Of the seed. Yeah, it's got to do with hybrids. Now, when I say hybrids, there are seeds that farmers cannot reuse. That's a really a big problem. So you don't have seed sovereignty. Third, it has got to do with the plant population. Fourth, it has also got to do with the management. I mean, farmers don't understand that duration. Some farmers do, but this is more a policy level. It's about research. It's about the kind of seeds available. Because the longer the duration, then what happens is that the monsoons recede, say, by end September. So the monsoon period in India is, say, July to September. July, August, September, maybe October, four months. So any cotton that is maturing post-October needs irrigation. And if you can't irrigate, the cotton is starved of nutrients. So the yields are low. I mean, today, you know, India says, oh, we have 40% of the global area, which is right, but we only produce 29% of the world's cotton. So we have a huge problem of productivity. Can you just paint me a picture when you say sowing? Like, what does that actually involve? And when you say harvest, can you describe what does that actually involve? So when you say sowing, you actually put the seeds on the ground. And is that a manual process? Yeah. See, seeds are very expensive, so you don't use seed drills. Most sowing happens by hand. Okay. So you mark the land with the spacing, and then you actually go peg by peg, you put these pegs on the ground, you go peg by peg and you sow the seeds manually because seeds are expensive, you know. Yeah. And then when you say harvesting, I actually mean picking when you when you start picking the cotton. Manually. Manually, yeah. Because mechanization is only in countries like Australia, Brazil, USA, maybe some parts of China. Mm. But I think mainly it's uh, hand-picked. And the thing is, you need different kind of cotton for machine picking. Ah. Because cotton in our context is an indeterminate crop. It's not like wheat, you harvest it one. It means that it keeps coming. There are first flush, second flush, third flush. So you have first picking, second picking, third picking. Whereas in countries like Australia, USA, Brazil, you have machine picking. They kind of make sure that the cotton is harvested in one shot. This is fascinating. So, okay, this then gets into questions about knowledge. And I'm curious to understand from you, how does a smallholder Indian cotton farmer, and this, I know there might not be one answer for this, but typically, how do they learn about how to grow cotton in the first instance? I mean, are these people who have grown up in the business and learned it, you know, that way? Is it trial and error? Where does the knowledge come from? And, and what's the impact of this on the way that cotton is grown from your point of view? Well, it's it's well-known factor that farming is a profession you inherit. Farmers have a lot of wisdom, traditional wisdom, 
and they grow up on farms they you know their parents are farming so they they their practical knowledge and wisdom is is unsurpassable but the thing is that the work being done at research institutes and you know india has a sizable research community there was a recent report that i was reading it says there are only four scientists or four researchers to 100000 farmers so basically like people are researching cotton no in general it could be soybean it could be fruit there are just four so what i'm saying is that science is not reaching farmers okay farmers are being advised by shopkeepers by businessmen i mean they work really hard they have to fight the vagaries of nature vagaries of price i mean it's hard work to be a farmer of course india and many countries have research institutions they have research structures but the fact of the matter is that with 6 and 1/2 million people i'm just saying 6 and 1/2 million cotton farmers but the outreach is just not happening so what's the consequence of that consequence is that package of practices which are being formulated or researched at research institutions are not reaching farmers there are pesticide recommendations what is to be used for what pests that's not happening as a result farmers are using a lot of broad based broad spectrum pesticide which means you're killing beneficial organisms because you're using broad spectrum you don't know what molecule is for what basically they are very target oriented uh, pest management practices for instance right so the fallout of this and then also what has happened with climate change coming in farming systems are becoming very knowledge intensive not input intensive see when green revolution came in it was all input intensive you gave fertilizers it was all about distribution and stuff but now it's all software Mm. and the size of the sector is too huge and the manpower available is too small so this is having very very negative impacts on soil health our soil health is has really deteriorated and farmers have to use more fertilizers it's like a you're caught in a treadmill yeah you're just caught in a treadmill yeah so talking about inputs though Can you just take me through practically what inputs does a cotton farmer need and who do they get these inputs from and how does that maybe impact the way that cotton is grown Well see essentially you need seeds seed is a very big issue because although we have very good public sector seeds the public sector seed chain is virtually in a limbo for various reasons so it's is a private sector which is ruling the roast mm-hmm. uh we have hybrids which means it's recurring value capture seeds cannot be used again so you are depending on the market completely and uh, you do have some government channels for fertilizer because fertilizers are heavily subsidized especially urea so we have a terrible imbalance fertilizer use because it's subsidized heavily heavily subsidized so there's a tendency to use excess nitrogen excess nitrogen leads to nitrification nitrous oxide it has its own a set of complications so you have shops you have government shops um from where you can pick up your fertilizers then you have several pesticide dealers is big business 
pesticide is a very very big business in india and when i say pesticides i mean insecticide and herbicide it's a broad term there are umpteen number of shops shopkeepers dealers and that's where the farmers get their inputs from essentially but also probably a lot of information right like about what they should do or shouldn't do yeah absolutely and although we are popularizing there are some very good apps now available the international cotton advisory committee it has developed an excellent app in several languages which you can take a picture it will tell you what it is it will tell you what needs to be done but proliferation of the app is you have a app called plantex where you can take a picture of any disease it will immediately tell you what it is so this basic knowledge is lacking and this space is being used up by pesticide shopkeeper so the shopkeeper actually becomes your go to person imagine you walk, walk into a chemist shop to buy medicines and the shopkeeper is telling you no no have this have this have this have this but whereas when you and i go mostly we have a prescription from a doctor right so it's like going in without a prescription yeah yeah you go in on a prescription the shopkeeper say take this take that take that and new products are coming into the market with uh, i mean on the seed front new packaging you know they have film stars they have names like uh, atm they have names like uh, i mean all catchy names you know to lure the farmers so the seed industry is a huge industry but the fact is that of course farmers do their best with whatever knowledge they have but certainly there's a really a big gap and this gap is causing yield losses it's causing soil health deterioration water bodies are getting polluted etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and actually i was going to ask you about that but how do the cotton yields in india compare to other cotton growing contexts and is this knowledge gap sort of the reason why the there's maybe such a difference in those figures or i look india is um, out of I think 80 cotton growing countries we rank about 35 36 which is quite poor in terms of yield. I don't think the reason is just knowledge of farmers it's also the kind of farming system that the policy makers have pursued since the introduction of hybrids. I mean I was just looking at some figures today 60% of the global yields come from 35% of the cotton area. India and maybe many other countries we've not taken the global best practices into account both from a policy perspective but also in terms of knowledge yeah so one is the kind of seeds you get yields have got a lot to do with planting geometry i mean we have a plant population of 10000 plants per hectare globally people are doing 100000 plants per hectare 80000 plants per hectare I mean if you look at Australia, China, Brazil and you know people say oh they are irrigated countries they are not most of Australia's cotton is rain fed most of US cotton is rain fed cotton is not a water guzzling crop cotton is what is called a xerophyte it's a desert crop it takes its ancestry from the desert so a lot of policy issues have happened over the last 25 30 years so i don't think it's really the farmers It's a policy. It's about, I mean, what is your GDP allocation on agricultural research? Mm. I mean, if you look at India, I, I don't have the figures offhand. It's very low. Mm. It's like saying, what's your GDP allocation for health? You know, 
Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the sale of the cotton before we get into ginning and spinning. You've already, we've talked a little bit about to whom the cotton farmer would sell. And you've also talked a little bit about what exactly they are selling. But what drives the price of cotton and what makes that price so volatile? I think it's it's got to do with global prices. It's got to do with the U.S. cotton market and uh, that's how prices fluctuate. Last year, we had a very, uh, the prices were really high. I think it's got to do with global stocks available. So I think it's all got to do with international commodity prices. Cotton is an international commodity. So that's how prices fluctuate. Yeah. And actually, I was curious because the cotton that comes from one farm, is it the same as the cotton that's coming from another farm? Or is there like a lot of variation in terms of what might be considered like good quality or bad quality or sort of different types of attributes that cotton might have? More or less, it would be, I wouldn't say 100% homogeneous, but fairly homogeneous Mm -hmm. because it's got to do with the seeds. So most of our cotton is about 29 millimeter long to medium staple. So it's, there are variations, but the variations also come between the first picking and the third picking, there'll be a variation in quality. There could be a variation in quality because of moisture, you know, because when the picking starts just immediately after the monsoon, the moisture content is very high because you're just coming out of the monsoon. So I would say the quality is fairly homogeneous. Yeah, because uh, we have multiple hybrids in the market. I mean, in a village, you may find 30 hybrids, 40 hybrids. And people were saying, oh, one village, one variety, or if not one, even five, but that doesn't really happen, you know? Mm -hmm. And then um, we have a peculiar problem with a pest, which has now become resistance to genetically modified cotton. If that is attacked, then you may have a deterioration in in quality. So I think your answer is fairly homogeneous. The variation won't be chalk and cheese. When ginning factories sell bales, there's a lot number. A lot could be 100 bales. So spinning mills will have lot-wise quality report in which they also have gradations of color. You can't see it with the naked eye, but... It could be slightly yellowish, it could be whitish. So what mills do is then they lay out a mixing plan. Supposing they they have one mixing is 600 bales, which will last for a week. Then they will do the blending of the bales, lot numbers here, there, and try to make it as homogeneous as possible. So there is enough variety at the farm level that there's still a need for this process of blend. It is because as a spinner, I may buy cotton from Punjab, I may buy cotton from Gujarat, I may buy cotton from Karnataka. So it's not that I'm, uh, as a spinner, I'm uh, limiting my purchase geography to 500 kilometers or 1000 kilometers. Right. It depends. I can buy cotton from any part of, the, of India or I can even import cotton, you know? Yeah. My last question on the farming stage 
was that, you know, in our last time we talked, you said something to me that really stuck with me. And that was that agriculture is doing well in India, but farmers are not. And I wondered if you could just elaborate a little bit on that statement and, and maybe why that is. So look, seed companies are making money. Pesticide companies are making money. Fertilizer companies are making money. Machine manufacturers are making money. And the farmer, you know, he buys in retail and sells in wholesale. So this is a global phenomena. I, I mean, I don't know about advanced countries. I mean, because yields are dropping, cost of cultivation is going up. I mean, if you look at uh, cotton in India, certainly our, uh, our productivity has stagnated for the last 15 years, it's coming down. We have far many more pest problems. Soil health is so poor that farmers have to use more fertilizers. So from that perspective, the business is good for pesticides, for fertilizers, for seeds. So that's why I'm saying that the agricultural industry is doing really well. Mm. I'm not saying the farmers are down and out on the road and they are, you know, sitting with a begging bowl. That's not what I mean. But for the effort they make, it's not commensurate. Let's go back to the ginning. Can you just paint a picture? I mean, what does this look like? So basically, a ginning factory will receive cotton during the season because ginning is also a fairly seasonal industry. So ginning factories are normally shut from May to August, September because it's a seasonal business. They'll start doing their overhauls and get ready say by September. And basically a ginning factory is a large, large compound where you have farmers, trucks are coming in, Tractors are coming in, bullock carts are coming in, and cotton is being dumped in their compound. So they need space. They have a way bridge. It's quite bustling with activity if you go to a ginning factory during the season. And then now we have a bit of mechanization. So all the cotton is lifted by tractors, fed into the machines. So you have a conveyor belt which will take the cotton and the ginning process is actually very simple. What you do in a ginning process is you remove the seed from the fiber. The seed being heavy falls down and the fiber being light is either sucked in through a pneumatic system or whatever goes further into being pressed into bales. So you can have a 180 kilo, 190 kilo bales because transportation requires the cotton to be pressed. The irony is when it goes to a spinning mill, it has to be opened again. You have to open the cotton again. So you bale it for transportation and the seed goes down. You have these different ginning machines through a conveyor, collected in a central point. And the seed is sold by the ginners to oil manufacturers. You know, there are people who buy some ginning factories have oil extraction as well. But a lot of ginning factories just sell the seeds and then the bales go and they'll store the bales depending on their holding capacity or what kind of contracts they have. So they can, of course, all the cotton goes to a spinning mill, but some cotton is also exported out to countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam and stuff like that. So that's the ginning process is basically removing the seed from the fiber and compressing because you have to compress it. To transport to the spinner. Yeah. So can you take me through the spinning process? So basically, look, spinning is just a process of stretching the fiber. Of course, you have different counts. You can't see with the naked eye. You have fine, finer counts means the numbers are higher. 
40s, 50s, 60s. Those are fine accounts. Numbers of what? That's the fineness of the thread. So if you look at a yarn... Uh, you're talking about thread count. The cone, yeah. Because yarn is wound in cones. Yeah, okay. With a naked eye, you can't make out what is a 16th count and a 30th count. They all, to the naked eye, will look the same. So spinning is a very, very modernized industry and uh, completely modernized uh, with, you know, the, the initial machines came from Switzerland. You know, Switzerland was a hub of the machine manufacturing. So India has... The latest spinning technology, of course, now a lot of lot of machines and the tie-ups are being made in India. So basically, it's preparatory. It's where you prepare the fiber. So you have a blow room where you open the fiber and then you have the carding machine, which actually pulls the fiber. Then you have a draw frame and then from a draw frame, it goes into a speed frame and the ring frame. Ring frame is where actually the yarn is made. And then it goes to a winding. Winding is where bobbins are like, it's like a small finger. It may have 10 kilos of yarn or something like that. So you have a bobbin. Oh, to like wind it around them. It's like a plastic. Uh, yeah. It's thicker than a pen. So that then you can unwind it when you go to. Yeah. So these uh, cones, they're called bobbins. The bobbins will go into the winding machine, maybe. 12 bobbins will become a cone. Mm -hmm. So a cone could be 8 kilos or 10 kilos. And then you also have what is called yarn conditioning. And then, of course, you have different kinds of yarn. You have slub yarn. You have S-twist. There are many things. But you see, garment manufacturing, it needs far more skills from the worker perspective. You mean like the cut and sew part of the assembly? Yeah. So one of the things they say about India is that you know, China is exporting far more garments than yarn. India is exporting far more yarn than the garments because it's a skilling. It's really about skilling the sector, you see. So that's the spinning process and the spinning industries are very modern. They have all the latest technologies because if you don't have the latest technologies, you cannot, you know, you cannot stay in the market. I mean, if you look at the history of textile mills in India, all the old mills have shut down. And if you look at Bombay, most of the mills in Bombay now are uh, are real estate. There's a lot of excess spinning and ginning capacity. Yeah, I would say ginning capacity is excess, probably even spinning. Uh -huh. But that's the way it is. I mean, today a ginning factory may be running at 30-40% of the capacity. But you see, ginning is not a very capital-intensive industry. It's really the what you need in a ginning factory is good cash flows. I mean, compared to the capital expenditure, your cash flow may be three, four times more mm. because you may not be able to turn the money more than three, four times in a year. It's a complete different business. Ginning is a very rural base. It has modernized, but the modernization level is not up to the level of a spinning wheel is a high tech. It's a modern industry run by professionals you know, who may carry iPads and, you know, maybe wearing a tie. And I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just trying to give you a picture, whereas yeah. you won't find a guy carrying an iPad in a ginning factory, although you may be surprised. Anyway, just to give you a contrasting pitch. Yeah, but I'm curious, like, do the spinning facilities, at least, you know, that you've seen, or are they only spinning cotton or do they also make yarn from other types of materials like is it the same kind of machines that are used to spin cotton as would be used for other types of spinning perhaps 
And what other types of yarn might they be making? Um, they may do viscose, they may do blends, they may do bamboo blends. All kinds mm. of uh, blending is, is happening. Viscose. I mean, the whole, the whole... Ah, so like cotton blended with all of these other things. Yeah, viscose with uh, modal, with, you know, this blended yarn. All kinds of requirements, you know, especially for industrial products. So it's a really a big industry. I mean, India has a huge uh, textile earnings in India, humongous, huge foreign exchange and a huge employment generation. So it's really an important industry and has modernized in leaps and bounds over the last 25, 30 years uh, because of various reasons. Yeah. And I'm curious, okay, you've maybe alluded to this already when you talked about who does the garment making, but to whom do spinners in India tend to sell? Are they selling to domestic mills, knitting facilities or weaving facilities? Are they exporting? And what kind of things impact? I think it's a combination, combination of everything. Okay. Could be exports, could be domestic mills. It could be to knitters, weavers who in turn may be exporting the garments. And what drives the price that a spinner might be able to get for their yarn? See, it largely depends on the price of the seed, the lint cotton. These are standard conversion charges. Interest, electricity, labor, capital, depreciation costs. So the spinning cost may vary from mill to mill. For example, if you want to go to a mill and say, look, I want to do job work. When I say job work, I'll say, look, I'll give you the cotton, you give me the yarn. So you pay the difference. So the cost of a spinning mill is, I think the, the cost of the raw material probably would account for 60 or 70%. I'm not sure exactly, but 60, 70% of the cost of yarn probably is the cost of the raw material. Yeah. Well, Rajiv, this has been such an education and I'm so grateful for your willingness to spend your time sharing, I think, just like a tiny, tiny fraction of all the knowledge that you have. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Manufacture. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.